You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob O'Sell. I'm an architect at This.Labs. Today, we're excited to sit down and talk with Rick Conrads about all the things he wishes he knew when he first started in development about risk, making technology decisions, and even relating to his manager. So as I mentioned, today we're talking to Rick. Rick is an engineering manager at This.Labs. Rick, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you, Rob. You know, I'm so glad that we get to have this sit-down chat in front of everybody. Start us out, Rick, because it's even a story I don't know that I've heard from you, which is to say, can you kind of tell us how you got to this place? Like, what brought you uh, to being an engineering manager in tech? Great question. Thank you. Um, I've, I've had a really fun and varied background. Um, I was an electronic technician in a, in a field that was kind of dying out, and I changed over to web development. My first job was doing websites for NASA through an outside firm. Literally my second day on the job, I was sitting at Goddard Space Flight Center telling actual rocket engineers how I was going to show their shuttle carrier system on a website. Um, as time goes by, you know, uh, we had a lot of interesting projects with NASA. Unfortunately, I went through a round of layoffs and after that decided, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to build myself as a sold as a private practice, uh, you know, incorporate myself. And I ended up through sheer luck, specializing in nightclubs and bands. Uh, did that for about five years before it just wore me out and came back into stuff. But from that experience, kind of, you know, uh, having that, lead management kind of role just kind of led me further and further into a management position uh, in the field, which I've really enjoyed. That's super interesting. So back in the NASA days, you were doing uh, development at that point. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. What, 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 what was the, if you're allowed to say, right. what was the technologies and stuff that you were working with back then? Um, hate to admit it, classic ASP. <laughs> oh, ASP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of just flat HTML. Um, I got to work on interesting projects. You know, the, the carrier system was a, a Spartan shuttle carrier. So if you had something that you wanted to put into space, it had to get bolted to something to be in the space shuttle. And that was a Spartan carrier. So it was a website about those carrier units, about how you mated your experiment or, or item into that carrier to be taken into space. That's the thing I love about web development is really just like, more than almost any other technology, it has eras. Like I have worked with people that cut their teeth on the uh, the Flash era and did like all their development in Flash, ASP, you know, uh, we were laughing the other day because we were having a conversation and a few of us shouted out, Microsoft front page. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, that's what I love about this. It's such a fast moving uh, industry and just, and just the technology space in general that it really is funny. You're like, oh yeah, the ASP days. I mean, that's still around, right? Uh, ASP.net and stuff, but. There are some actually, there are some sites out there. And in fact, I worked for a company not too many years ago that was still using classic ASP on the back end, but they hid the extension so that it wouldn't show that it was actually classic ASP. <laughs> yeah, those go to ASPX pages, yeah. No, that's yeah. hilarious. And it's funny too, because like, I, again, I was having another conversation with somebody else and, and they were a Java developer. And I was like, oh man, I haven't done Java backend development for many years. I said, you know, I used to do de development in struts. 
I said, not even struts too. And they, and they, you know, just there's sort of this knowing nod. Like if you have, if you have somebody that's done Java development for long enough, especially they do government work, you know, and just bringing up like struts. And it's just like, it's funny that there are so many eras of frameworks that uh, people nowadays, even people that have been around for a long time have never run into. Right. Uh, truly an elephant's graveyard of, of old tech. I had attended two different flash forward conferences back when you know, they were pumping money into that product. And then to see it just suddenly die overnight was amazing. So then you make this transition into being a manager and mm -hmm. that seems to have stuck. I mean, you're still an engineering manager now. Yes. <laughs> what was it about that that resonated with you? And were there any times when you maybe were considering like, should I be going back to a more technical scene or, or what, you know, what kind of, how did you process that decision? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the things I would tell definitely any current developer is stay current on your stacks, on your technology, because it will change whatever you think, whatever right now is this, this is the, the future. This is what's going to be around forever. It won't be something else is going to come behind it. Something else is going to follow through. Make sure that your knowledge and your your um, your head is around the principles and the architectural design principles and you know proper approach and the technologies will come and go, but the fundamentals will stay the same. It's really true, and I mean, staying on top of things is is important for any number of reasons. I know that uh, as I've had you know more opportunities to be in a more leadership and management role, it can be often very tempting. Uh, to pull yourself out of the critical paths. And if you don't really force yourself to stay current, you can find yourself going months or even years uh, without writing any code. And that's a tough moment in front of the mirror when you are faced with, do I need to really work hard outside of work to get my technical skills back up to snuff? Or am I just gonna resign myself that this is it? I'm in a non-technical role now here going forward. Uh, and you don't want that decision to be made for you <laughs> because you exactly. haven't been keeping yourself current. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, one of the things that I think is interesting uh, to have the opportunity to talk to people that have been on both sides of the table is to talk about things that surprised them when they became a manager and things that people that are listening now, they're like, you know, this really bothers me about my boss. If I was a manager, I would never do that. I would never treat someone that way. I wouldn't, I would do it this way. And you get onto the other side of the table and you see a little bit about how the sausage is made and you're like, oh, you know, it's a, it's a lot like being a parent. All yes. those things you said when you were a kid that you were like, I'll never do that. And then you hear your parents come out through yes. yourself to your children. And then you just call your parents up if you're lucky enough to still have them and just I'm say, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was a terrible kid. <laughs> so yeah. what are some of the things with management that nowadays when you look at it, you're like, oh, if I could go back and just tell myself this, it would be such a life hack. Oh, there's so many things. Um, you know, we, as, as developers, you know, with an eager desire to solve problems or take something and create something new to grab something new and try to, uh, incorporate that into your day-to-day -day work or your, your current project. When there's so many things to consider before doing that, you know, um, Let's, I'd love to make up a JS name or probably anything I pick probably already exists. It probably already exists. So go ahead. Yeah. We'll say not affiliated. Right. Not affiliated.js not affiliated comes out 
you know, and one of your developers is like, oh man, this is, this is great. This solves a problem. Let's add this into our workflow. Let's do this and add it into this product without vetting it. Um, you know, just wanting to just sink your teeth into this bleeding edge and go for it. Um, and then feeling that heartbreak of when your manager says no, but the manager probably <laughs> at some point in time had earlier not affiliated.js bite them at some point and they're you know reliving those moments to say okay this is why we can't do it now it should come with an explanation but there's usually a, a backstory or a clear path of why something isn't incorporated and I do want to come back to this concept of how we're going to pick uh, software, because I know this has been a topic that you've been interested in and uh, and have a lot of thoughts and certainly a lot of experiences about. Right. Uh, but, you know, on this idea of like what I would tell people and what I do tell people when I when, you know, when I'm in the position of being a manager is that no matter how good your manager is, no matter how impressive your accomplishments are, you need to sell yourself a little bit mm -hmm. and uh your managers will appreciate it <laughs> right. trust me they're trying really hard to pay attention to all the things that you're doing but they have maybe multiple reports and they have a lot going on and it's very easy to be more invisible than you think you are to them and so i tell people i say it's not bragging i say keep a document as you're going through your year um and as you have major accomplishments as cool things happen just make a note to yourself or like send yourself an email with a special tag. Like when, when I get inspiration ideas for blogs, I send myself an email with blog in the header. And that way I can go back and collect all my ideas. That's just a really easy way so I don't lose them. Whatever you need to do, keep a note of what you're doing and send it to your boss. Mm -hmm. Hopefully not just at performance valuation time, but maybe review it together regularly. It, it makes a difference because no matter how impressed you are with your reports, when they really present you with a list of all the things they've accomplished, you're like, whoa, I forgot all of the, some of those things. Like that's, is an impressive list. So mm -hmm. one of the things I say is that, you know, even if your manager is amazing, they can't keep track of everything. Uh, so you gotta meet them halfway. And, and some people feel like that's bragging. They feel like that's unwelcome. It is the most welcome thing when people are willing to give you the list of things that they think are accomplishments. Like, I know I love getting that. I don't know about you. Completely love having that because like you said, you, there's no matter how important something is, things happen during the course of the year that we forget, you know, it's not, it's not uh, top of mind at the moment. And then other things, other things happen, but to keep some sort of a log journal about these major accomplishments, huge. You know, fortunately, internally, we use a, a software tool that lets us keep track of some of that so that we can easily pull back. And um, the email idea is great, especially if you have some sort of a tagline in your subject. Like I said, you know, show me all Rob's blog emails and it's pull it right up. Yeah, it's 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 amazing too. like this is this is more advice really for people that even you wouldn't even get to if you were a manager, but maybe like a senior engineer is I see a lot of like younger developers that um, think that one of the ways they can jump forward in their career is to be at all the meetings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were already talking about how, you know, as you sort of have more leadership responsibilities that usually comes from the cost of your coding responsibilities. And so I tell people, I'm like, don't be in a rush to get into those meetings. Cause once you start getting invited to those meetings, you get invited to all the meetings. And when you're invited to all the meetings, you're not coding much okay. anymore. And uh, I tell, you know, especially juniors, but uh, even up to mids and, and even low seniors is like, 
be at the right meetings um but guard your time as much as you can like give yourself as much room to grow and to focus you know a lot of times we say i you know i hear some developers say like oh i'm, I'm sucked into all these meetings and you know most of the time that's not their they don't have control over that but sometimes right. they do sometimes they're just trying to be helpful so they're volunteering to be mm -hmm. at all the meetings or they don't want to be out of the loop uh, right. push your team to communicate better and disinvite yourself from meetings. That's another thing that impresses me a lot. When somebody takes ownership of their time and disinvites themselves from a meeting with a, with a, a nice description of why they think that they don't need to be there. You're like, yeah. it, it really comes off as like, this person has a lot of, um, maturity and understanding of what they're trying, where they're most effective. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think finding a good way to, to pace yourself and to apply yourself efficiently is, is also a huge value add, very impressive thing. Completely, especially when you have a developer that knows, you know, I don't need to be there because if there's anything critical, you're going to tell me about it in our one-on-ones or a quick update. Um, not needing to be somewhere is a, definitely an important aspect to remember. You know, um, I've had times when people say, well, why didn't you invite me to this meeting? We don't need to be there. Don't I have anything valuable to add? Of course you do. But most, I know that most of this conversation is going to be about some mundane thing that has absolutely no effect that is not worth what you can write in code during that time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean, honestly, sometimes people go to the meetings and they don't feel like they should be there. So they'll like code through the meetings or whatever. I, right. We've all done it. I've done it. I've done it recently. Okay. I'm not, I'm not above this, but, okay. right. uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, sometimes that works against you. Again, you know, you think you're you're doing what you need to by being at the meetings, uh, but but the lack of attention is noticed. It's felt. It's logged against you, and you, you know you're faced with this idea like, oh, I'm just going to go to the meetings because I was asked to do it. I'm 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 not happy about it, so I'm going to code during it. Like that hurts you. But just saying I don't want to come to this meeting because I don't think I have a lot to offer, and I I I think I can better use my time in this way. Right. And if they agree, now you got a value add. So it's like you went from hurting yourself doing the same thing to getting credit for it um, and then not having to sit in the meeting anyways. I think some people don't realize where there are opportunities in their organizations to take ownership of things. Like you may not be able to control the biggest levers, who's hired, who's you know not, who's where the money goes, what projects kick off, what projects end. Right. But you have a lot of little levers around you. Um, and I think it's always impressive to managers when somebody realizes that and they're using it to help to help out. And you're like, mm -hmm. hey, that's that's impressive. Yeah. And the more personal you get on these conversations with your, your team, your developers, the more they're going to explore the studio space and know that they have that kind of freedom to get those things done. And you're much more in line with them over their day to day versus, oh, well, I know he was doing something today or he or she because they were in this meeting. No, it just means that they had it on. Yeah, yeah. If you don't need to be interactive and involved or just for simple awareness that you can't just relay afterwards, then you don't need to be there. And it's, it's not, uh, you're not being disregarded or unincluded from something. It's not worth your time. It's amazing. And this, I mean, honestly, this advice goes for managers with their reports as well. Like yes. managers need to always be good at their communication, but I just feel like all of this advice just goes down to being a better communicator. I mean, I just find like people that are the easiest people to manage are people that are just communicating a lot. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, especially if, you know, you're in a remote environment like many of us are right, um, right now, at least communication is, is, is harder than ever. It well, it's both easier and harder, right? It's, it's more accessible than ever with chat programs and whatever else, but it's also harder because if you're in an office and you're walking by people, you're visible, you're present, you're seen, mm-hmm. even if you're not heard, you're seen. In a remote company, you can disappear. Um, right. And you don't think so because you're present, you're reading chat, you're seeing things happen, you're doing work, but you're not visible. And some of the easiest people to manage are the people that just talk. And a lot of times someone will say to me, like, am I talking too much? Nobody else seems to be saying much. I said, no, first of all, hopefully by you talking, it'll draw everybody else out. But I said, second of all, you almost can't communicate too much in a remote environment, in a remote first kind of workforce. Uh, but if you are, trust me that I'll tell you that maybe dial it back. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you almost cannot communicate too much. And and if you find a communication style that works for you, it, it goes a long ways. Like some people, everybody likes to report and, and communicate differently. Some people like to do bulleted lists at the end of their day. Some people just like to be very chatty during the day. Oh, I'm, I'm finished with this. I'm picking up this now um, or whatever it is. Find one that works for you. And then uh, trust me, your managers notice it and talk about it Absolutely. <laughs> when, yeah. you're, when you're communicating like that. Uh, I've had several of those communications in the last couple of weeks. You know, just thank you for the way that you brought up this conversation and kept it alive. And we got some really good conversations coming out of it. So thank you for that. Um, those are things that people need to hear. All right. Well, you know, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. We're going to come back to it now, which is this idea of, you know, making technology decisions when you're going to approach a new project and you're kind of come up with a new technical approach. You know, are we going to use this framework or this library? Are we going to use this style of programming? Are we right. going to use this language? Are we going to pay for this SaaS product or build it ourselves? Mm-hmm. These are all the kind of conversations that all of us are having on our projects, if not every day, certainly on every project at some point, you know, we're having these kind of conversations. Um, can you kind of introduce us a little bit into this topic? Uh, sure. you know, what people need to be paying attention to and kind of maybe <clears throat> why this resonates with you or, or why this is something that you're kind of passionate about. Oh, absolutely. And there's so many ways that these things come up. It's either, you know, you're, you've got Greenfield and you're building something new and you're trying to make the decisions of all the pieces that are going to make that function, or you're upgrading an old piece of software. It's like, how are we going to decide the direction that we're going to take, uh, to bring this up to, to current speed? So, um, gosh, it's hard to, it's hard to narrow it down into one because there's so many different ways, or uh, a team member has a passion for something new, something that's come out or wants to introduce a new product or, or an addition to something you have existing. Um, so, and I'm sure we, we both have many examples in our background of, you know, where these kind of things have happened and how to make these choices. And when you've said yes, and when you've said no, um, a lot of these things are going to depend upon the size of your team, the, the how much runway you have to get the project done. Um, you know, and looking at how much of a delay can you absorb before you have to say, okay, we, we went down the wrong path. We've got to dial this back in. So um, is there a particular direction you'd like to go in to start? Yeah, I mean, we can just sort of jump in. I mean, like one of the ideas that I think is super fascinating about this that people don't consider a lot when they're selecting software because i mean we should acknowledge for a second that there and i'm sure you would agree that there are 
there are models that are so varied. I mean, we've both worked with or known of people whose teams it was the case that they could just install anything. Just if yeah. they if somebody wanted something, just npm install, install it, and put this library in. Whatever, it's all good. No no checks and balances. It just went in because somebody thought it needed to go in. Sure. And all the way to the other side. I mean, I've worked with like uh, with like IBM and other vendors where every single version of every library that you are allowed to use has been approved by someone. So it's like, you can use version 14 of that library and 16, but nobody ever requested 15, so you can't use 15. But 14, 16, and 17, you can use. And it's like, there's just a giant binder or a website that you go to that tells you if it's approved or not. I mean, like, right. the the range is wide. <laughs> but one of the things that I think is interesting is on the very base level, a conversation that isn't had often enough, in my opinion, is, mm -hmm licensing and cost. Yes. I don't even want to think about how many proprietary pieces of software out there, closed source software mm -hmm. that are unknowingly using software that would require their source to be open. Sure. That is a scary risk. It's hard for people to detect that. So it seldom comes up as a, something that has been a, 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 a lawsuit or anything, but I mean, it terrifies me to think of how big the f software companies are that might have that lurking within them. Um, and so licensing and cost is one of the big ones, I think, up front, whenever you're making any kind of software decision, mm -hmm. um, is like one of the first things you have to ask. Simple thing like a font choice, where you're, you're throwing something in that has a usage limit. And you estimate, oh, well, it's not going to be a problem. And the page gets refreshed or used a lot more than you expect it to. And suddenly the font looks different. Why? Well, because you exceeded your limit on that license and it's not serving it anymore. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's if they're lucky enough to know that. I mean, right. licensing is so complicated that there's no way for developers to be experts in this, but you know, you need to bring it up to your group to talk about, but this mm -hmm. is unrelated to tech. I once was blown away by this idea that, um, you know, you can watch a movie. You can have your friends over for a movie, but if you want to have a neighborhood movie night and show a movie on a projector, mm -hmm. that's illegal. Right. Or at least you're... it's a copyright violation. Like you're, perf you're doing a performance of that movie yeah. and you have to properly license that movie to do that. And you're like, I own it though. And I think that's where a lot of, like you're saying with people with the font, they're like, well, I bought this. Well, you bought it, <laughs> but did you buy it on behalf of all of your users? Can you afford to pay for that for all of your users? Right. Um, that one is not a bill you want to get and certainly not a lawsuit you want to get. Oh, my goodness. One of the recent audiobooks I completed was, I think it's the end of ownership, talking about a lot of that stuff and the simple bits of, you know, we're in an age where we own digital products and that simple function of, copying something temporarily on a server before it gets to you, that's another copy that isn't licensed. And there's people out there scrutinizing those little bits of, well, how much of the recreation constitutes a copy? But yes, there's a lot to that. Yeah. And, you know, this is even without, I mean, if, if you're a developer and you've never um, uh, been introduced to software licenses, this is definitely something that you're going to want to do. Um, particularly the difference, they call them copy left licenses. 
uh, and I remember in a place that I worked, you know, this guy did this presentation and basically just put, you know, like hazmat signs on this thing and mm -hmm. said, you have to be careful for copyleft uh, uh, licenses. And, you know, again, it seems like a dry topic that developers shouldn't care about. But I mean, when it does matter, it is potentially lose the lose everything type of lawsuit i mean if you lose a licensing thing and, and suddenly your entire closed source company code needs to be open sourced by the terms of the license or you owe some incredible fee or fine um yes. you know talking about things your manager likes to see <laughs> this is not a conversation you want to have <laughs> with your manager right um, because of uh, because you weren't thinking about licenses so you don't have to know every single one you know like oh what's the difference between mit and this and that and this I think what would be valuable for people to learn as a team and to review as a team is just the types of licenses. And then whenever you approach a, process, a product, a new product, ask yourself and as a team, you know, have it in your selection criteria, what is the licensing model? And then if it's one that you're not familiar with, research, is it a copy left? Is it, is it you know, uh, whatever, MIT style? Is it, is it this, is it whatever? Um, mm -hmm. And then just make sure that you're comfortable with it. Agreed. Well, along with licensing, there is sort of maybe accidental licensing, which is be careful with intellectual property. Yes. Um, so can you explain what this is about? Oh, some, uh, <laughs> fun personal story on that one. Um, the intellectual property of the company, obviously you're gonna, you wanna protect you know, what you put out there and, and how it's shown in code. Um, even before you get to putting your stuff into code, interactions within your company, you know, there was a time and what I'm referring to is I had this idea for a product at a previous job. And once I emailed using my company email to someone else in the company talking about that idea, that idea was no longer mine. So keep in mind some of those things. If you've got something really juicy, really good that you think is, oh, this is just great. If you're doing that within your work environment, that becomes the ownership of the people who are paying you to be working at that time that becomes company intellectual uh, property. Um, yeah, or, or, or worse still, uh, or I don't know worse, but more complicated still, you know, mm -hmm. we work in consulting and we often have provisions that the code we develop for those clients oh, yes. is their intellectual property. And I have been uh, around when a team decided to use some company proprietary library or something they'd used um, somewhere else where they were allowed to use the code, but the mm. problem was once they used the code, it wasn't our it's code ours. anymore. It was yes. the customer's code and we couldn't productize it or advertise it or continue to expand on it because it wasn't ours anymore. And it's like, again, another one of the, all of these are going to be conversations you don't want to have with your manager, conversations we've right. been experienced with seeing people have to have with their managers. And it seems so innocuous. Like I need this utility. I'm going to, sh you know, we talk all the time as developers, share code, share code, share code, mm -hmm. but you have to be careful because using your code in some places could mean that you no longer have access to it anymore, or you've, you've Absolutely. given a license to somebody else or ownership of it to somebody else, whether it's yours or your company's or, you know, heaven forbid another client's that's the worst right. scenario. Yeah. Once you work with client a and you're solving a problem for client a, and then client B comes along with something similar, you can't go back to that toolbox and say, I'm just going to use what I did here. If they own it. And that's, that's definitely uh, their intellectual property. 
Yeah, and it's not like custom, you know, companies are trying to get this over on you. I mean, some probably are. I mean, I'm not going to try and vouch for every company out there. That would be foolishness. But, um, right. you know, most companies that are doing this the right way, they're not trying to get your intellectual property. A lot of times when you see these kind of like intellectual property assignment clauses, it's due to this kind of stuff. It, it's, you know, if you start using these things at work, they don't want to run afoul of any type of rights that you have. Um, even incidentally in the way that you were using the code on their behalf. Um, and so a lot of times that stuff is there for, for you know, risk risk assessment. It's, it's to reduce legal liability and, and things like that. It's boring stuff. It's not terribly interesting stuff, but it's somewhat necessary stuff. And so usually that's where those clauses are coming from is, is uh, you know, it's, it's helped capture scenarios like this when, um, you know, when you accidentally or incidentally use something and now it's owned by another party and you're like, right. oh, well, that would have been fun to do. That would have been fun to do stuff with. And I think, you know, that's another conversation is whenever, again, whenever you're in a team, if you're going to do something that's inspired by something you've done something somewhere else, like if you're uh, another company, for example, um, that you've, that you worked at previously or whatever else, I think that's the type of thing you want to definitely talk to your team about, definitely talk to your manager about, and that may involve legal as they try to tackle through like, well, wait a second, let's see if any of this is um, somebody else's intellectual property, if this is a unique idea, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, communicate early, communicate often, because yeah, you don't want to get months down the road, a year down the road, that thing's now in the heart of your system. Right. And you can't and legal out. analyzes it and determines it has to go. And you're like, well, it can't go. And you're like, it needs to go. <laughs> you can't launch. Right. Yeah. Well, another one that can come up, I think, is uh, security right? Security mm -hmm. is obviously a thing that people need to think about. So what are some of the things that people should be thinking about when they're, you know, selecting vendors or technologies as it pertains to security? Oh, great question. Um, especially if you're, you know, you know, if your company is SOC 2 certified or if you're ISO 27001 compliant and suddenly you want to add another plugin or a vendor that you have to now um, speak to their um, compliance. So, you know, I'm, suddenly I'm working with vendor Z and that might throw a snag into my ability to stay certified if they have, if they are not staying certified themselves. Um, definitely you want to run a risk assessment on what that plugin could be exposing, especially if you're HIPAA compliant. You know, if there's PII going through uh, a plugin that you have to be able to say, <clears throat> you know, it's encrypted end to end, you got to be able to, you know, um, vouch for that, especially, you know, in your, in your banking and, and, uh, medical customers. Um, I'm sure that you've, you know, had recent experience with that yourself over decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, security is difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, there are some tremendous vulnerabilities, you know, anytime you see a new, uh, major vulnerability come out, um, you know, in third-party libraries, yeah. it can be frightening. Um, some of them can be quite scary. You know, some of the ones that I remember going through many years ago, like Heartbleed and and others, uh, Go to Fail, uh, or Allow, I think whatever it was, the the Apple bug. Like these ones um, are are qu quite intense. Um, and if you're on a team that's become falls prey to them, I mean, you're talking about immediate crunch time uh all hands on deck to fix it because these things are exploitable in the wild and with tremendous risks risk often of losing uh financial information or more than that but 
you know, what's tricky about this is that on the web ecosystem, we have this incredible and dangerous <laughs> organ at the heart of everything, which is the NPM registry. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a, it's a great tool. Security is, is very heavily considered and valued by that team, but it is a, um, the fact that so many libraries incorporate other libraries, which incorporate other libraries, incorporates other libraries, makes it incredibly difficult to know what all you've included. And I think <clears throat> you, you make the risk of something bad happening greater the more you pull in. Um, either by pulling in a lot of libraries yourself or by pulling in a lot of libraries, which pull in a lot of libraries. Mm -hmm. And so this is always a push and pull, but I think, you know, it's something that you should weigh is how many dependencies does this thing have? Does it need all those dependencies? Am I okay absorbing all of those dependencies as if they were my own dependencies? Because, you know, there are notable examples of people um, using sort of social engineering to get control of some of these extremely downstream small packages and injecting key loggers or, you know, things that are trying to steal uh, crypto uh, wallets or whatever else it is. Um, and, you know, you don't want to be the person that's responsible for uh, including, you know, a virus even into your software, let alone, you know, be prey to a vulnerability in, in another library. Yeah, and if you're using a library that gets flagged, then you know your users out there uh, who are using you know different virus protection software, your whole thing could be flagged because of a plugin that you're not aware of. This has been uh, considered compromised. Yeah, uh, and so it's definitely something that people need to be <clears throat> accountable for. And again, I don't know that I'm aware of a great model for this, like. Mm -hmm there's it's not like you have a clear virus scan and there is absolutely no way to do a full code audit of every piece of code that is in every one of our npm dependencies there's just there is no way mm -hmm. and i think for some people especially maybe some people in security that's an unacceptable answer but it's nevertheless an answer we've had to become acceptable with and that's how you end up with some of those companies that have the binder of approved versions it's because somebody literally had to go in and audit the whole thing and say, I vouch for the security of this. Mm. And I think one of the ways that you can make yourself more safe with this is to do a good job of practicing version pinning. So if you're going to accept a new library, accept maybe not the most latest version, but maybe the next most recent version, because that's been in the wild longer. It's less likely to have a known exploit. Um, and if you pin it to that version, you're not going to automatically suck in the latest code, which might have vulnerabilities. And so this is one of the ways you can minimize it. And so you sometimes, this is how teams end up a couple versions behind the latest is because they develop this like hard and fast rule of pinning a version and only upgrading when they want the features mm -hmm. that creates its own risks of, right. of later having to do costly migrations or upgrades, but you know, it's, everything's a trade-off in software, right? Everything's a trade-off. It is. Um, and you bring up an interesting point with um, the older versions of plugins. You know, what happens when you're you're running along smoothly, but this plugin that's been there for years has been deprecated. It's no longer supported. And now you're forced, you can't just upgrade it. You've got to replace that whole plugin. Um, 
I was involved with one not too long ago where just a simple feature of showing date and time. Um, how do you show that on a global scale in a SaaS product where it correctly shows European versus US date visualizations and correctly adjusts UTC to the local time? Does it adjust for daylight savings and all these crazy things? So you start getting into this process of a, a huge SaaS product. How many different places are we using a plugin that alters the date from the original UTC into the local user's time? I think the, in this particular case, it took six months and there were still bits of, oh, on this page in this use case, it's still the old plugin or it's still broken. It takes a long time when those things are so spread out through an, uh, an application. There's another aspect to, the, to this sort of selection process uh, that, you know, that, that you've sort of talked about and written about is that's interesting is vendor lock-in. And I think that this is a concept that is one of the most widely misunderstood or bike shedded <laughs> concepts out there um, of vendor lock-in. I think it is a very vital criteria, but I think people often can go the wrong way with it. And so I'm kind of curious your thoughts on what people should be considering when, when considering the concept of vendor lock-in when they're selecting new technologies. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of aspects to it. One of them being, you know, are you looking at one vendor that supplies a feature that no one else supplies? Is this your only choice versus, okay, if something fails here, they go out of business, uh, something, some security flaw comes up in their software. How hard is it to switch that, that, out? Or is that a feature that I'm going to have to take away from my product because there is no alternative? Yeah. I, the, where I see this go wrong a lot of times is you you see teams that are well-intentioned develop this sort of mantra or a manager inserts the instruction, the requirement that the software needs to be able to work on any vendor. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is, honestly, you almost never switch vendors. Right. Switching vendors is incredibly expensive, incredibly risky, and it, it, it is not done lightly. And the way that you secure the ability to switch vendors and not be locked in at all is that you have to put an adapter around every vendor mm -hmm. that is compatible with all of them. Right. And you lose all the individual powers of those platforms, the unique powers of them, independent of each other. In, in exchange for what is the broadest, most general set of advantages across all of them. And trust me, no matter how senior you are, no matter how many years of experience, you're not going to be better at putting a layer around every, you know, AWS, GCP, Azure, whatever else. Try to come up with an API layer that it works over all of them in a way that you could secretly swap out any of them without your application knowing. Right. You will spend way more money trying to do that than you would have just doing the migration sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think you're, you're absolutely right from the perspective of, you know, be mindful when you buy a tool. If you buy a tool that uh, is doing a particular task for you, let's say it's um, formatting uh, file outputs, right? You're like, okay, well, maybe the tool should put it into CSV format, but instead this tool you buy puts it into their own proprietary, you know, encrypted format, which gives you all these benefits and cool advantages, but you 
literally can't use that output in any other tool. You can only use it in their tool. I've seen teams walk into that where you're like, whoa, like, yeah, that tool's cool and all, but now it's forcing a lot of things back onto the system that make it so that we can never get rid of that tool because it, it, it's the only tool that does it that way. Nobody else does it that way. That's a really weird way of doing it. It's cool. It's interesting. It's valuable. But like, can we get another tool that maybe does it in a more generalized way that's more compatible with other ways of doing things? So I don't know if you've encountered any of that experience or if you've ever been bitten by that in the past, but. In some ways, um, there was there was a company I worked for that it was a shipping company and it, it used a certain product on the back end because it was using a database that was really good with cubes. Um, but their front end technology was JSP. And if I wanted to stay on with that particular role, it's like, oh, we want you to focus on JSP. And at the time I thought, wow, well, you know, I don't think that's going to last. <laughs> so, um, and that, that's something that any developer is going to have to look at is, you know, if you're going down a path and it's, we're going in a technology direction, like a really uncertain future, there's risk involved there as well. Yeah. I mean, for us, we were looking at <clears throat> different analytics vendors and, you know, obviously Google is a big player in the space with their Google analytics and Google tag manager and such. And there are others that do a lot of really interesting things, but they all represent their data a little bit differently. And, but some are more different than others. And uh, one of the things that we looked for for this to prevent vendor lock-in was, can we get an export of all the data? And the reason why this was important to us was because we were temporarily maintaining the system. We were going to hand it off to somebody else eventually, and those people may have their own analytics system that they would have preferred. We were using the ana that analytics temporarily. They weren't not they weren't really clear about what they wanted to use in the future, but we wanted to make sure that if they didn't like our decision, that they could get the data out. And then, you know, through some effort, get it into their new system. And so we made sure that the vendors had an ability to do an export into some CSV format that was more generalized that, but that seemed like it would work if you put it into another system, it had roughly the same kind of things that other systems would want. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became part of our decision-making process. Again, it probably wasn't the biggest piece, but uh, you know, we probably rejected at least one option because it either didn't let us export or the format that it exported in was not going to be easy to put anywhere else. It felt very proprietary. Just bringing this up is bringing back some battle scars of <laughs> pulling data and trying to run ETL to normalize many years of, of uh, personal records of participants in something where you can have addresses that, you know, how do you figure out which one's current? How do you figure out, mm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this, this was dealing in the medical field and how do you know which practice this person is actually associated with now when you have three of them associated with them? Uh, just the ETL process and how do you, the, the original question, the original comment is how do you get your data? Can I get my data? And what form is it in? Extremely important. And until you go through that a couple of times, you don't know the pain level. Now, Here's another one that's interesting. It's kind of maybe the last one we'll talk about today, which is, you know, skill, skill sets, skill sets of the team. Now, yes. normally this could also mean like things that people prefer to use. What are the, what are they familiar with? That's, that's the way this is often used. But, you know, the way that I, I want to ask it is how do you consider and help teams evaluate whether they should build their own or buy one oh. or, or not, let's not even say buy, just 
take an off the shelf version right. or or build their own? Like what should teams be talking about when they're trying to make that assessment? Well, what's Other the than the things we've already been talking about. Yeah, what's the reason for build your own? Are you asking for something or you, do you need a feature that is not offered on anything off the shelf? Well, I mean, like, let's say, for example, that that time example. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of teams go, well, I don't want to use Moment.js. That's too heavy. That's too much uh, uh, size in the in the bundle. So we should just do our own time management. And then they realize how complicated time zones are. <laughs> yeah, um, it's so really like insane thing. I had a very senior, extremely capable, fantastic developer working on this. He said, I hate time. I just hate it. <laughs> yeah. I think this is what's weird is that we, we just went through and talked about a bunch of things that make software risky to take into your system. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the reason why this is a thing that people do all the time, still, even in, in, in sight of all these risks, is because sometimes you will just not be as good at building something as somebody, some other team who that is their core expertise. Exactly. I mean, if you're building a dating app, that's fine. But if your dating app needs to use some sort of networking technology, it's not like you build your own HTTP stack, right? You're, you're, you need to use that. And so to some extent, there are certain things that a team should have humility about, like sure. hard problems that um, you need to recognize. Security is another one, right? Oh my goodness, authentication. Do not hand roll your own authentication system. Uh, if you can avoid it. And if you do, there are a list of things you need to know if you do, but mm -hmm. um, whole careers, whole projects have died out because, and huge nowadays, huge legal cases have been made because a developer, well-intentioned developer, a good developer made a mistake because authentication was not in their core expertise. Right. And they made it, they made a simple mistake that would be easy to make. Um, didn't use an off-the-shelf product, and now somebody has their entire company database unprotected, unencrypted. Yeah. Um, in, in most cases, building it yourself means you have something that's so unique that nobody's thought of it before or or something that just can't be easily redone. And there's few reasons to do it. Um, then the other thing that you mentioned previously is about, you know, the throughput, the load testing of, of something like this, how many transactions can it handle? Are you, is it one of those things where, are you gonna have the ability to make sure, can you handle millions, billions of transactions um, through what you're intending? That in a role your own, you know, create from scratch is even scarier to me. Yeah, it can be sometimes. I, I still don't know how to resolve some of that. You know, I think, I think people need to build their own things more often than they do but at sometimes they need to do it less than they do. And I, I, that's just one of these things that, again, you just, before you think about building your own thing, like you realize there's a need in your system and you're trying to decide, really force the conversation on the team. Like, especially with the more senior people, especially with your managers that maybe have been around for a while and have seen these things. Cause that's all of what we're talking about here, right? These conversations about risks and the things that can go wrong and what you need to think about. We don't do these things to scare you. We don't do these things because uh, we're telling you to be the least risky person and to, you know, to to not use cool new tech. Mm -hmm. It's it's just that we have been on teams that have made each one of these mistakes at various times to a pain level that we do not wish to experience again in the future. And when you when you deal with risk, if you talk to your manager about risks, it's never about hundred percent or zero. It's always 
well, what is the risk? What's the percentage chance that's going to happen? And what's the harm if it does? You know, maybe 1% risk of a minor inconvenience is totally fine, but a 1% chance risk that the company goes down? Okay, we're not doing that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's all, it's relative. And that's why the more you pull the team into these conversations, the broader the set of experiences you're going to engage with, the more you're going to get a holistic view of all the risks that are at play and make a much better decision as a team, uh, probably. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we end these conversations, we'd like to end with something fun and something that most people wouldn't know about you is that uh, you are very handy. So I know that you do a lot of things with resin and also some woodworking and in game making. And so my mm -hmm. question for you is, you know, some people like to say that they should be coding all day at work and coding at night uh, for fun, you know, to be a real developer. But tell me what you get out of having these kind of hobbies and what you enjoy about these hobbies that you have. Oh, oh that's, that's a great question. Uh, I love, I, I need a creative outlet always. And I try to tie, uh, I enjoy taking, like you mentioned, you know, woodworking and resin and stuff and trying to tie that into uh, an electronic indoor coding kind of thing. Um, a recent project that I had done for a, a great friend of mine, um, musician was to take an actual guitar, disassemble it, replace the strings with L wire, and then uh, create circuitry and programming in a little Arduino Nano to kind of take those guitar controls and animate the strings and have that light up and just make it a, a nice wall piece and then do the background in a nice epoxy resin flow, which uh, came out fantastic. I'm going to build three more of them, but Having those kind of things, um, it keeps that creative spark going. A little bit of programming helps. Um, I try to incorporate, you know, this electromechanical kind of uh, thing into what I do. Well, trust me, anybody that's ever seen your satisfactory factories knows that you have a thing for uh, <laughs> keeping things technical and electrical. But, uh, you know, someday you all have to reach out to Rick and ask him about his game that he made as well. I'm telling you, this man is very multi-talented, so very handy he had all of us playing for days uh his 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 card game that he developed so uh definitely reach out to him maybe uh and and talk to him about that all right well that is going to do it for us today thank you everybody for listening to this modern web podcast thank you to our guest rick as always the conversation does not stop here you can find rick on twitter it's not extremely talkative there but he's on twitter <laughs> at rick conrad's uh, that's R-I-C-K-C-O-N-R-A-D-E-S. And you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Rick. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, Rob. Come on. Come on, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. For all of your friends and you. Do-ba-do-do-do-do-yeah. Query, yeah. Query. Shout it. Yeah. Query's too. So come on, let's go. Cause we got a show for you.